Hi, hello, bonjour, and namaste. This is Out of the Clouds, a podcast at the crossroads between business and mindfulness. And I am your host, Anne Mulitaller. Today, I am delighted to be joined by a wonderful, pioneering even, entrepreneur called Rebecca Brown. Rebecca and I share a couple of friends in common in London and Brighton. And so when I first heard about her journey, I immediately knew I had to interview her for the podcast because I selfishly really wanted to hear more about how she got to where she is. So Rebecca founded a company in the femtech space called M Powder. She came to this after living through a difficult time in her early 40s. And at the time, she wasn't able to reach a clear conclusion about her symptoms. And she was turned away by her GP, by her doctor, because she was too young to have menopausal symptoms. And yet. So Rebecca explored possibilities that she found available to her before turning her findings into a powder, <laughs> a product, a product that could serve a community. She has become a very eloquent proponent of midlife being a superpower in women's lives. And so without further ado, I'm going to stop talking and let you listen to her story directly. And by the way, men, don't shy away from listening to this interview. It's really fascinating and I think all of us have a lot to learn about. So I hope you enjoy my conversation with Rebecca Brown. Rebecca, it's so lovely to meet you. Thank you for getting here today and welcome to Out of the Clouds. Thank you for having me. So I would love to ask you first to maybe tell our listeners who you are and uh, what you do. Tell us your story. Wow, that's a big question. So my name is Rebecca. I'm the founder I often describe myself actually more accurately as chief guinea pig, but I'm the founder of uh, a company called M Powder. We are essentially a community of curious minds in midlife that have come together to co-create products with experts that address specifically the biochemical stages of menopause. And the story behind that is a very simple one. I was traditionally, my role um, historically has been as a planner and M-Powder really came about as a result of my own perimenopause journey where I got quite sick. I, like many women, went to the doctors with symptoms I really didn't understand or associate with menopause because I was young, for one, I was 43. And also those symptoms were so broad reaching, I, I wasn't able to join the dots. I didn't know enough about what happens to our bodies during menopause really to understand. So I was suffering from anxiety. I had bone ache. I had hormonal acne. I was bloated. And I think one of the hardest things for me is in the career that I was in at the time, a lot of my job was around presenting and, and sort of noodling and thinking on really deep topics for companies and then presenting back recommendations that required quite a sort of a robust approach to research and also the kind of confidence to land somewhere and present your, your recommendations back. And I lost all my confidence um, during perimenopause. So I went from being someone who'd done this job since they'd left uni to someone who really felt incapable of presenting and kind of honing stuff down. I know now, obviously, that anxiety, brain fog, 
kind of almost like imposter syndrome are very common early symptoms of perimenopause. But at the time I had no idea. I just thought that something was horribly wrong with me and with my brain and my body. So long story cut short, the doctor experience wasn't a great one. And that's not unusual for for women. Around 75% of our community report going to the doctor and being told that they're either too young or being misdiagnosed as, as being perhaps depressed or burnt out. And that happens, understandably, to a certain extent, because doctors are woefully short on time. And they're also very rarely trained on symptoms of, associated with menopause in, in enough detail to be able to join the dots as well. So I went to my doctor. He took one look at my lifestyle, I think. And this is really tough on women because we strive so many of us I think we strive with our ambition with our desire perhaps to have families with responsibilities around our extended family at this age as well perhaps our parents are getting older perhaps loved ones need more support and quite often we hit this kind of menopause wall without realizing that's what it is and we're told that it's kind of because we wanted it all you know that we're we're burnt out we need some time away from those pressures in order to recalibrate and it's kind of your (laughs) fault is it sort of implicit (laughs) (laughs) Yes, the implicit feedback. And and that that was what happened to me. You know, I think the 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 doctor in question was my doctor for a long time, and I've got a huge amount of respect for their knowledge, but they took one look at my lifestyle and assumed that that was what was happening. I burnt myself out because, you know, I dared to have a career that required a lot of focus as well as having children and as well as having aging parents. And that just wasn't, you know, manageable. And I probably would have, I'm quite a sort of obedient individual. So I probably would have just done what he asked me to do, which was take some time away, consider antidepressants if you're really struggling, but just just try and rebalance your life a little bit. But I kind of knew inherently there was something else going on. And, you know, this was two, maybe three years ago now. And perimenopause wasn't actually a word that was used commonly. I think it's it's fantastic that actually since Empowder has been in business, this awakening has happened, which is is going to be incredibly helpful for the for the next generation of women entering this life stage. But for me, I, I hadn't really heard of perimenopause. And that was a bit embarrassing, actually. It was a bit embarrassing that I didn't know that this very sort of significant life stage would occur to me and all my peers. And the more I learned about it, I think because I'm a researcher, the more I wanted to kind of solve it. And so I went on a very long convoluted <laughs> exploration to learn about what perimenopause is, what the implications are for our current and future health and what we can do about it. And it really was a result of that learning and my own sort of essentially my own recovery that led to Empowder being born. There are so many things I want to ask you. <laughs> Maybe the first thing I'd like to ask you is which symptom brought you to the doctor? Was it just one? Yeah, no, it's a really good question because it, I think often, again, for, for women in midlife, it's kind of a layering up of symptoms. And, you know, we are phenomenal at enduring, you know, but that doesn't necessarily mean that we should. And I'm I'm constantly amazed when I talk to women in our community about how much they endure before they actually seek help from a doctor. Because I think we're kind of taught just to deal with pain as women from a very early age. And particularly when it's stuff to do with hormones or fertility or cycles, you know, really from your first period, you're, you're taught that, yeah, it might hurt, you know, it might leave you bedridden for a couple of days. It might be really uncomfortable when you're in meetings. It may be really awkward when you're trying to have social situations. So that's just what women do, right? And I think there's a certain element of that that then carries through into all sort of gynecological conditions that women have, where they're quite often underplayed and dismissed within in the doctor's surgery. And so when stuff was happening to me, it all felt relatively incidental, you know, in the sense that, 
yes, I was bloated and really uncomfortable, but maybe that was my fault. You know, maybe I wasn't eating in the way that I should be because I was stressed. And yes, I was struggling to sleep, but maybe that was my fault because I've got lots of, you know, so you, you kind of tend to hold yourself responsible for your health because you don't understand that there's something biochemical occurring that can, can be better supported if you had the tools and the knowledge to do so. But I think the thing that drove me to the doctor was the anxiety became so crippling that I was struggling to really have conversations. You know, even the lift, I was, I was practically scripting the kind of off the cuff conversations I knew I might be having to have as I went up the lift to give a presentation. And, and I was getting up so early to prepare and I felt so bristle as a person, you know, anything could, could sort of reduce me to tears. I just, I just felt that I was falling apart, you know, that my body was betraying me, but also that I was going crazy. You know, I, I couldn't find the words for things. I couldn't speak naturally. And I really, I have a history in my family of multiple sclerosis as well. So there's a thing in the back of my head that was thinking, maybe you've got something going on. Maybe there's an autoimmune condition here that you, you, you just need to face up to and go, go and seek help for. So I think that's what, that's what drove me in. And ironically, to a certain extent, it was that desire to continue living the life at the pace in the way that I had done. I wanted, I didn't really see that there's an option to do anything differently. I just needed to get back, <laughs> get back to full speed. Yes. <laughs> That's very interesting. When I was doing my research for this interview and reading articles on, on you and on the product and the community, I couldn't help but go back to my own experience around this, which was well, I, I flirted with burnout for a few years while I was still in my previous job and I didn't know what burnout was at the time. So a lot of what you describe feels like I've been through it, <laughs> but I couldn't tell you if it's perimenopausal or actually flirting with burnout. Both were possible. Yeah. Thanks. <laughs> I really put a lot, a lot, a lot of my own energy into self-care in order not to burn out because I could tell there was something wrong. But I also had a diagnosis of autoimmune disease because I have rheumatoid arthritis. But what I wanted to share here first is a couple of years ago, I noticed that my emotions were becoming more intense. And I remember going to a new gynecologist and me saying to her, I think that there's something strange going on because I've never had bad PMS. And she said to me, oh, you know, this may be perimenopause, but she didn't give me anything extra. She didn't offer any support whatsoever. But she looked at me at the corner of her eye and she said, but you know, don't do anything crazy like break up with your boyfriend. And I was like, oops, <laughs> too late. <laughs> and in a sort of a very emotional sort of flurry, I always found that there was a reality of circumstances that were feeding into the emotions, but the emotions were just heightened to a level that were uncontrollable. And thankfully, because I am a mindfulness student, a mindfulness teacher, I have been able to observe myself sufficiently to see that there still is this presence of a force of some kind inside me that takes over sometimes. And I want to say it's kind of freaking crazy. Mm. It is crazy. I mean, I think it's fascinating, isn't it? And I mean, I read a, a fascinating um, article, and obviously I can't remember the author or the publication, but the person in question was talking about the fact that we, we you know, we're taught to not make big decisions, you know, when we've had a, a loss in the family, when we're grieving for something. And yet perimenopause, this whole journey is a series of letting go. And, and there is an element of grief and, you know, frustration and anger at our bodies. And obviously our, our hormones are impacting on, on our moods as well and the way that we see things. 
And yet quite fundamental decisions are often made during this period because we're again, we're not, we're not able to take that step that you you've been able to do in terms of your mindfulness practice and sort of observe the way that we're responding. You know, you look at the amount of relationships that break down during this period and suicide sadly is at its highest for women during the, the menopause transition. You know, a lot of stuff happens because women do feel crazy. There's a huge sort of sense of empowerment when you, for me, when I saw uh, a chart that, that sort of plotted the hormone fluctuations of perimenopause to postmenopause. And you look at it at the age of 43 when you're feeling crazy. And it's, it looks basically like the scariest roller coaster ever. The perimenopause is just like mm. all of these ridiculous squiggles. And you see what, what was happening sort of follicularly before, you know, when you were mm. just having a standard cycle that many of us have, you know, from, from puberty onwards. Relatively, relatively straightforward. And then you look at what happens afterwards in terms of how our hormones behave. You just, you look at that sort of bundle, that mess in the middle, and you just think, well, of course, you know, of course that's going to have a, play havoc with how you feel. And, and all there's an element, I think, sometimes of liberation and almost sort of burning off some things that need to happen in life. It can be really, really disruptive and, and very damaging to us and to those we love. Yeah, I was. It's interesting that you talk about that. I would love to see that chart, by the way. Yeah, I can share that. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be great. Yeah, around the same time, I was grieving the loss of my dad. I lost both my parents between 2014 and, and 2019, and a cat, and my dad's ex wife, and my mom's husband. So lots of loss in our family over a few years. And the thing that I did know about grief is that it's also a biochemical explosion. Yeah. yeah. So you never know from one day to the next how you're going to feel. And again, you don't really feel quite in control of yourself. But so for anybody who's experiencing any kind of grief, it's an extra overlay that just makes it even harder to get a grip on, on, on our lives. Now, one of the things that I loved about what you did is you left the doctors and you went to seek help and you went to look at what was available in terms of health supplements. You weren't convinced what was in the shops and why did it not work for you? Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? That you you don't walk down, down certain aisles <laughs> in your supermarkets <laughs> until you have to. So for me, I don't know what I was expecting when I walked down the menopause aisle, but I certainly wasn't expecting to be presented with a sort of an end of life category, which is how I decided to describe it. And the thing that troubled me was, was on a number of levels. I mean, my background, you know, as I've explained, is as a, as a researcher, a planner within the creative industries. And so I'm very attuned to the subliminal messages that we get as humans when we look at stuff because, you know, someone very clever from a creative point of view has, has worked on that packaging to convey a message that they want you to absorb in order to purchase the product. That's kind of how it works, right? If I was to extrapolate what was being presented to me on those menopause shelves, it felt like, a, a, you know, that they were talking to a very frail very elderly woman who was mainly worried about bone density and was riding a bicycle invariably or standing in a cornfield. And just everything about <laughs> it was at odds with what I felt I was as a, as a woman, but also all of the individuals I knew who are a similar age and therefore would be going through the same biochemical stage as me, even if we hadn't been talking about it to each other yet. And I couldn't understand as well, because as a researcher, a lot of my work had been focused on the impact that millennials have had on the way that we consume and with the way that we live. And what's been fascinating for me as a sort of specialist looking at the way that people think is that millennials are the first generation effectively to influence up. 
So, you know, normally you get influenced by your parents and, you know, you get the influence kind of pushes down and we rebel against it or we, we adopt elements of it. But with millennials, there was something about the way that they chose to live and engage and innovate that pushed up. And so people of my generation who sort of sit a little bit beyond the millennial age range expecting brands to be authentic we're expecting an element of, of honesty and truth and you know we're looking for sort of homegrown solutions we're looking for a sense of community because all of those things exist in the beauty and wellness space and so we've we've adopted that way of thinking and what also struck me about the menopause offerings was, was that they just felt like there was something out of the 1980s you know and there are some brilliant brands I hasten to add that weren't on that shelf <laughs> when you generally go into these stores particularly if it's one of the health food chains or it's it's your local supermarket which is where, where many of us begin looking for, for supplementation then it was overly dominated by pharmaceutical companies and it felt like they hadn't addressed this space since the 1980s when we were all buying kind of multivitamins and we were looking at the back of packs and really we were just looking for a flavour. You know, we were choosing strawberry or orange. We weren't, we weren't looking at it and going, hmm, is that bioavailable or is that actually a, a sort of a therapeutic dosage that's going to do anything? And it felt like the menopause space had kind of been forgotten about and you could kind of feel it in the way that the brands looked as well. It just felt like it was a dusty corner that had been forgotten. And, and that's quite damaging because you know as a woman who potentially has been turned away from the doctor who's feeling you know as you say almost crazy sometimes but totally alone perhaps in their journey unable to have a conversation maybe with their peers or with their work colleagues because it's still a tricky subject to talk to and then you go sort of instinctively to your health food store because you think well maybe I need some nutritional support maybe that's where I need to begin and what you're presented with is a really bleak picture of what aging is for a woman and you're presented with products that basically are going to do very little to help you and that that can be like death by a thousand cuts and we often find women in our community particularly women who've had their menopause and so you know a few years further along the journey than I am that they would have cycled through pretty much any product that you could name and it's been a catalogue of, of overpromise and disappointment and and if you're not careful that just sort of cements their view that they've just got to push on through you know and get and this is basically life now and and that's 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 awful because there are tools and support and practices that can help but if you're not careful by the time they get to those they've kind of given up and they're tired of trying Sure. And also their body has evolved. It, they may have lost some of the vitality and other essential qualities that made their life more qualitative beforehand. Anyways. Joy. Yeah. Joy. I mean, it's really hard to find joy when you're feeling rubbish. You know, you're feeling rubbish pretty much every day. Yeah. Now you describe yourself as a problem solver. And so you go to super drugs or wherever and it's not looking good. I'd love to know what was that spark in your mind that got you to get a dehydrator in your kitchen and to start blending your own powders? Because that's like a next level step. I completely admire, by the way. So fangirl here. Yeah, well, I think it's fair to say that I'm quite obsessive. If I can't unpick the knot, then that's probably what made me a decent researcher is I will always go deep uh, to find things out. So the dehydration... <laughs> machine was a moment in my family's life that they're probably quite bad I've moved on from I was kind of reading all this stuff around functional foods and I managed to hustle my way into a number of conferences that I really shouldn't have attended because I wasn't I wasn't a medical practitioner or um, a functional food practitioner but there's there's some fascinating events obviously that that occur in the calendar for medical professionals that have started to look at the potential of food as medicine 
So I, I think what's fascinating about the the attendees at these um, events is that increasingly doctors are looking to find additional tools to support the patients that they see in clinic. And there's a growing recognition, of course, that food is, is the first form of defence, actually in dealing with some of the world's biggest, most chronic diseases as well. And what was fascinating about going along to those sessions was listening to doctors saying that, you know, if they could, they prescribe a decent diet. You know, you'd, you'd, you, if you're looking at someone who's sort of pre-diabetic and you look at all of the side effects that can occur with the medication that they would prescribe, it'd be much, much better to be able to convince them to try two months of uh, a more focused meal plan that could actually bring them back from that brink. And you look at that with cardiovascular disease, you look at obesity and, and the impact that has. And so that that kind of spurred me on, I guess, to, to sort of dig further into how what we eat could impact the way that we experience menopause. And there's all kinds of research out there about the potential of food for menopause, but it's also pretty hard to unpick because you can't discount other cultural factors. So for example, quite a lot has been written about, you know, the potential of soy in our diets. But then when you look at the sort of the biome of people living in Asia, it's not just as simple as suddenly introducing soy to your plate. There's, there's much more going on there. There's also much more from a cultural acceptance perspective as to what Asian means for women in, in different parts of the world, where that kind of positivity can also impact the way that you experience menopause. So I was, I was curious about the food. I was curious about the amount of food you needed to take to, to achieve the therapeutic dosage. <laughs> and that's when my dehydration machine came in because basically quite a lot of the research that you read requires quite a lot of, lot of that said food product. And it became almost impossible to get it on my plate. And so I started looking into blended powders and how you could do that yourself and how I could try to get that food onto my sort of dietary plan for the day without actually having to sort of sit there eating you know, kilograms of kale. And I entered this whole world of dehydration I didn't know existed. And uh, <laughs> there's, a, there's a lot going on in that world from survivalists to sort of like health food practitioners to, and I learned a huge amount. I bought a dehydration machine off Amazon. I started playing with different dosage levels of the foods I wanted to include and learned about how, how, how you dehydrate them. And I ended up with this powder that was absolutely disgusting, but I started to feel better. And I, I always, when I tell this story, I think a number of things were occurring. I think I had, by that point, almost become, I'd say, 90% plant-based in, in the way that I was eating, which was a departure from how I used to eat before. I was having a really rich and varied amount of vegetables. And because I was being planful about the kind of fruits and vegetables that I was including, you know, it, it was making a huge difference to how I felt. Everything felt more mindful and considered and nurturing just because I was caring for myself rather than grabbing something from Pret. But it's obviously not sustainable. And also I was doing other things as well. But what I realized was that there was huge potential in food and botanicals and vitamins and minerals if you got them from the right sources. And that really was the beginning of the development of, of the recipes for empowered. So I realized very quickly that obviously I'm not a medical practitioner, I'm not a nutritionist or naturopath. And I needed to find people who had got the in-field experience of working for women in midlife, but also had the robustness that I always like to bring to research so that they would help me understand and kind of whistle down the ingredients that could be a helpful foundation layer for, for women at each of these biochemical stages we go through. And that's kind of where the recipe development for our product range began. So <laughs> from dehydration machine to people who really knew what they were talking about, we kind of evolved along this. And, and that's what we took into trial with our, with our trialists. 
That's awesome. How long ago did you get a go-to-market with the first product? Oh, it's a year ago, last week. So we're a year old now. Wow, congratulations. Thank you. (laughs) Yes, it feels a lot longer. But the first year of of shipping something was really quite an emotional experience. I remember there were sort of two moments of you know, in extreme nervousness for me. The first was the trial, and which happened during the pandemic. In fact, our whole life really has happened during the pandemic. But sort of sending out your product to people you've never met, you know, 50 people you've never met, to, to try it and to feedback honestly. I remember sort of sitting in my garden because it was a very early sort of hot spring, wasn't it? And this was May time and, and just thinking this could all go horribly wrong like what if they hate it like what if I make them feel ill what if what if it doesn't work what if you know I get shamed by by this effort you know it's come from a really sort of private experience as well and suddenly I'm becoming a face of menopause (laughs) how do I feel about that and and sort of going from that huge sense of fear to within about a week such a sense of sort of generosity and gratitude, you know, that women were willing to to feedback and were willing to share and support me in getting it better was a real lesson in human kindness, actually. And then when we started shipping, the fact that someone would buy it, I don't think you ever, well, I don't think I will ever get tired of, of the excitement that comes from someone else finding our brand, you know, but that first sale, you know, stays in your mind. That is so exciting. So one of the things I really enjoyed reading on your website is your mission. And it reads, the mission of Empowder is to reframe midlife as a superpower. Can you talk to us about that? Yeah, I think there's two things that we're really focused on as a, as a business. You know, one is co-creating products and services and solutions that enable women to take agency for their health at this life stage. And that is about layering up and working out what works for you because everyone's menopause is entirely different. And the second thing is destigmatizing what has been historically a really awkward life stage for women to talk to and for society to recognize uh, in the West. And what troubles me most is that at the heart of that lies a sort of a discomfort I feel with with being female. So with our hormones full stop, you know, our generation and and our mother's generation, our grandmother's generation were taught to hide that femaleness effectively, uh, to leave it at the door when you go into work, to hide your tampon up your sleeve when you go to the toilet, to not talk about pain, to not talk about difficulty in doing things at certain times of your month. And what I learned quite quickly in researching my own menopause journey was the power of our hormones if we can harness them, you know, and if from an early age, instead of dreading your monthly bleed, you actually learn when you're most creative in your cycle. You know, when should you be doing endurance sport as opposed to resistance training? When are you most likely to be, you know, on that supercharged mode that we all have every month where suddenly you could basically be running three countries and still have time for, you know, watching Netflix at the end of the day? to the other times in the month where you feel quite depleted and vulnerable, but there's there's often quite a lot of creativity and uh, deep thought that can come about. And so that's really what we're looking to do. We're looking to encourage women to reframe menopause and midlife as a life stage and see it as a stepping up point. Because a bit like that, that hormone cycle I was describing, as you go into menopause itself, obviously your hormone cycle becomes very different and eventually changes. And what happens with that change statistically is also incredibly positive. If you've got the right support around you, 
you've got the tools that you need to feel nourished and well, then you're more likely to start a business in midlife and succeed. You know, midlife female entrepreneurs are much more successful than the kind of stereotypical vision of a, of a young 21-year-old in flip-flops in San Francisco. We're much more likely to have empathy, which makes, makes us incredibly valuable within the workplace. We're better at conflict resolution. We're happier. We're more purpose-driven. There's so many sort of positive things that come about as a result of this transition. And that's really the thing that we want to be encouraging people to think to, because I think the problem with menopause at the moment is not just that there's a lack of education, but also who wants to find out about something that sounds truly horrid? So we tend to ignore it until it hits us, which isn't good for anyone. Yeah. I'm really excited about you reclaiming this. I'm sure you have been aware in some of the changes that the the millennials and, and Gen Z have made already in terms of getting more acceptance around period shaming. Yeah, of course, there's so little progress given fact that we're in 2021. How do men that you've come across, how comfortable are they to even engage and discuss and find out about this journey that we get on and they hear about your product? Yeah, that's a really good question. And, you know, I mean, to your point around sort of period and also fertility and just, you know, the difficulty with fertility, the fact that it isn't this dreamy rainbow kind of colored experience for, for most of us. You know, I think the honesty that's coming about in terms of sort of significant life stages for women is, is incredibly positive. And I think that millennials and Gen Z, they're not going to experience menopause in the way that we have because they're just not going to accept that it's something that is taboo because it happens to 51% of the population. So it's hardly niche. And in answer to your question around sort of Talking to men about menopause, you know, I guess there's there's two two experiences that I can talk to. One is the experience of trying to raise funds for menopause product, which was incredibly challenging. I have a huge amount of empathy actually because I've, I think what occurs in society around taboo topics is there's a recognition usually on both sides that it's uncomfortable, and no one likes to make anyone feel uncomfortable, and so. It's, it's very rarely something that's sort of a deliberate ignorance. It's, it's something that people just don't know how to broach. And so what I found with my conversations with VCs, where invariably I'd be talking to a male, you know, invariably I would be older than him because I was a mature entrepreneur. It was just incredibly uncomfortable for them. It's like watching, you know, no one likes to watch someone sort of squirm. And so I, the, I used to, <laughs> I used to have to begin my, my pitch as a, you know, as a entrepreneur and bearing in mind, you very rarely get more than 30 minutes with these people. So every minute is precious. And I would say about 10 minutes, any, any pitch time I was allotted was spent educating them on the biochemical stages of menopause because they just didn't know. So you'd, you'd have to go into the meeting and waste precious slideware telling them, <laughs> <laughs> telling them. And, and the only way I could do it in the end without causing extreme discomfort for all parties was actually to use myself as an example and to sort of pop the discomfort with with humor. So I used to start it almost like a confessional. You know, I'd say, my name's Rebecca, I'm perimenopausal. And then I would I'd go on to describe what that meant. And, and then actually it was really fascinating again with my research head on because what invariably would happen is there'd be is you know slight discomfort and, and rigidity at the other side of the table. And then after me talking it through and talking through the implications of menopause, so when I wasn't talking about bleeding, I was talking about other things, you could almost see like a light bulb moment where whoever I was speaking to would go, gosh, actually, do you know what? My parents separated when my mum was, you know, 
I, when I think about it now, when my mum was probably going through the menopause or my mum left her job when she, she was around that age or I'd never thought about it, but actually our, the tension in our house was really tough because my sister was a teenager at the same time. Or, you know, you suddenly find these, these guys joining the dots and going, oh my goodness, that probably was what was happening to my mum. I just remember tension or I remember conflict. Or, and so we all carry those stories, even if we don't realise that we carry them. And so I, I never found it a negative experience talking to men about it. But I think the discussions that we're having to have as a society is we become more inclusive and we look to address taboos and prejudices. They're not ever going to be that comfortable. And I think that's okay. So, you know, with the VCs, I didn't mind in the end being the person that, that had that conversation with them. That's absolutely fine. I think the challenge for me was, was then convincing them that this was something that was significant enough to want to invest in. Because I think the, the challenge for any VC and email exchange before this conversation, you you flagged the lack of VC funding that goes to female founders, which is woeful at around 2.2% currently. But I think it's very hard when you're you're backing a horse, which effectively is what people do when, when they invest in really early stage businesses, to invest in anything that you haven't got either personal kind of experience of or you feel totally embedded in as a sector. And I think that's the biggest challenge with menopause. To a certain extent, it's a challenge with femtech, but femtech has managed to do a bridge between tech and females. And so there's an element of them. If you if you label yourself as femtech, you're much more likely to get investment than saying you're a menopause product. Yeah. Actually, I was looking for another article that I read only a couple of weeks ago with a, a female founder who's on her third company, I think. And she gave very, very interesting, very direct feedback as to what her experience was. And it was a piece in Crunchbase around inclusivity. And yeah, I mean, I, I think that it must be very difficult as a woman founder to go and defend something that's particularly important to, to women that women themselves don't even talk about or know that much about. And then on top layer, the lack of funding that goes to women in general. And these are a lot of stacked problems. So I have to congratulate you even more <laughs> for the fact that you raised... It's, a, it's around 500,000. Yeah, amazing. What has that enabled you to do from your early beginnings to that round of, of funding what is the, the next steps for Empowder? I was very lucky in the sense that I feel that the, the, the people I got around the business were there for a reason beyond sort of backing the horses that we were just talking about. That They, they were really sort of purpose-driven individuals with really specific skills that I've been able to tap into in the last year. So what the funding allowed me to do was to take the trial to commercial production and sale, and then to instigate another trial for our second product. So I had funded personally the first trial of the Perry Boost and sort of, you know, basically cashed in the profit I'd made from business I was running previously, which was a planning consultancy, and just thought, I, I deserve to give this a go, you know, and, and if nothing happens, then that's fine. But I, I, I need to do something with everything I've learned. And so I felt relatively comfortable about investing in in getting it off the ground myself. And I think it's really interesting because I think women as entrepreneurs are often very different in the way that they approach funding and also the due diligence they apply to the way they spend. And that can sometimes be a blessing and a curse. And I'm very 
cautious in terms of the way that I spend. And I was very cautious in the figures in my forecast I went to market with. And when I look now at some of the decks that I see now as an entrepreneur, because it's a very small world, actually, and you give back, you know, you're constantly seeing docs and helping people with docs and connecting people, because that's how I found the connections I needed was people being kind to me. And I'm always fascinated when I see a female's deck across my table for, for comments, it's, it's literally down to the last penny in terms of how they're going to spend, what their five year plan is going to be, how, you know, and it's usually very cautious. You know, they'll usually include two scenarios, one that's kind of bold and one that's more measured. And it's very different. You could almost guess the gender in terms of the way that men will often present their ideas. They're much more confident and bullish, much less in the detail. And that's not a criticism because actually at that stage as a business, it's, it's almost pointless to go too far ahead with the detail. And I yet completely we as, agree. <laughs> yeah. We as women tend to you know, tie ourselves up in knots in, in time because we have to validate even the right to have the conversation, which I think mm. is, is, is a shame. But yeah, I'm very lucky in that the people that came on board were incredibly helpful. And we're now in terms of next steps to answer your question, we're, we're doing it again. So we're looking at following a year of what I would describe as proof of concept, you know, really tough year for everyone, I think, in terms of the e-commerce space with uh, the pandemic in the UK, obviously with Brexit impacting on making stuff. It's been really, really hard. So we are looking at funding again, and then that focus will really be from proof of concept to proof of market, and then hopefully international expansion. I was wondering about that. So here's the thing that I'd like to ask you about, because we've touched a little bit on your experience as a founder and the difficulties of, of course, that uh, we as women have, whether younger or older, to actually be able to break the taboos and, and get the help we want, because there's not enough research around women's reproductive health issues in, in general. But I read that the menopause market is said to be worth 4.47 billion by 2023. And given the fact that no one talks about it, I mean, you yeah. and this other <laughs> naturopath I know talk about it. So Just basically, yes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So What's the opportunity out there for, for you and anybody else who's interested in actually starting to tackle the 51% of the population that need help? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think these stats are really fascinating, aren't they? Because it is a topic that is very rarely talked about, even though it feels like I, I talk about it all the time. But, you know, when you, when you step outside this sort of menopause bubble, you know, you still find yourself sort of hit sometimes. I'm, I'm often shocked by how this has been absorbed because I kind of see it. It's a bit like any stage in life, isn't it? The minute you're in it, you see signs of it everywhere. So I see the column inches that have been given to menopause. You know, the fact that one in three editors in the UK now is a woman in midlife, I think is no coincidence um, that it's now getting the kind of media coverage that it didn't get two years ago. And celebrities similarly have far more agency for their careers than they may have done two or three years ago even, are able to have these conversations and kind of bring them to the open. But I, so I assume that that's all hitting women everywhere, but we don't pick up the the, the messages or, or the references until we feel that they're relevant. So most people are still woefully unprepared for what may occur to them. Mm. I think the thing about the kind of the sizing of the market is interesting because obviously it's not like we suddenly arrived and there's suddenly millions of us going through menopause that weren't going through it previously. And what the analysis is is showing is basically how the, the money is being spent. And I don't think they've even scratched the surface actually in that um, stat that you referenced because the thing about menopause, if you look at women in midlife, we're also the biggest spenders on beauty 
we're not even looking at the topical creams that women are applying to support their skin as it changes, the hair products they're buying because their hair's suddenly thinning or falling out, you know, the treatments they're buying for their nails. All of these things are actually to do with the menopause transition as well, but we're not even counting them. So, you know, I would draw a diagram that had that sort of menopause health then beauty and then wellness, you know, all of these things are where women are looking for solutions and support for for life stage that is as significant as our puberty. You know, it's like a reverse puberty. And in terms of what that means for entrepreneurs or people looking to engage in this space, I think the thing that I'm most conscious of is the need to behave really responsibly, because I think when you move into a space where people have been not just underserved, but they've actually been woefully served, you have a responsibility to involve them in your direction of travel. And that's really, I guess, why community and co-creation is at the heart of Empowder. I think there's something quite worrying about just pushing to market stuff, you know, stuff that hasn't been researched, stuff that hasn't had women's voices at the heart of it, because what women in midlife feel is silenced. You know, all of us feel that we're less relevant, less seen, that the brands that we used to engage with suddenly don't represent us anymore. And so What would worry me about this space with the price tag that's now been sort of put on it is a sort of like an influx, almost like a gold rush of stuff. And I think actually it needs to be, yeah, we need to take agency as individuals in this space. And a lot of businesses in the menopause space are just that. They're women who have had particularly bad experiences themselves or have witnessed loved ones going through a difficult menopause transition and they're wanting to do good things. And I think that's what we should be championing and lifting up is that, you know, the solutions that come to market need to be to have that sense of purpose at the heart of them and to have women's voice at the heart of them. Yes, I am glad that you mentioned that. What strikes me as we consider this is that most of my friends are in an age group. I mean, a lot of them, maybe not most, a lot of them are in an age group that could qualify them in, in being perimenopausal. And I don't recall a single conversation or the word even being uttered. So it's that, that in itself is kind of scary. Certainly our conversation today is going to prompt me to have it. <laughs> but, but there is also a very difficult topic because for those of us who haven't had children, there's obviously also the weight of what hasn't happened and could it even and and I'm certainly in that situation so that makes it even more tender and vulnerable to approach with anybody totally and totally and you know and to that I think that's the other thing we need to remember there's a I think there's a benefit to looking at menopause from a biochemical stage because in some ways it takes away the fear that you're doing something wrong in your life that's that's resulting in a series of symptoms that, that feel totally unrelated. But I think the danger of purely describing it as a biochemical stage is to miss the sensitivity around loss, you know, as our bodies transition and change, you know, lost opportunities, you know, a sense that life hasn't necessarily delivered what you may wish it to, live, to deliver. And sometimes it's not even what you wish for. You know, some of us choose not to have children because that's just not what we want for ourselves. But because we're so rooted as women in a value being associated with fertility and reproduction, it's 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 a grief, even if it wasn't something you wanted. You know, you, you mm. somehow feel that that moment has now passed. And I think you're right. It's an incredibly tender period of time for, for many women. And that, that kind of needs to be recognized and be part of the dialogue as well. So I'd love for you to tell me a little bit more about your community, because I loved hearing you talk on another podcast about the importance of, of having all of these voices supporting each other. Tell me, what is it like to build a community around such an important topic? I mean, the thing I always say genuinely is I don't think that 
we built anything. <laughs> I think the interesting thing about community, if it's taken at its, at its heart, is it's actually created by others. And so what you do as a as a business or a business owner really is just hold space. You set the principles, you know, so for us, it was really important that anybody was welcome into our community, that we're not, you know, for one, one practice and anti another practice. You know, there's quite a lot of division in the menopause space at the moment as a result of the need to also reframe HRT and ensure that people aren't scared of it. But I think what's also, also happened as a result of that is that there's a there's a fear that anything that isn't HRT is therefore anti-HRT. And so, for example, our kind of rules of engagement within our community are that we we encourage anyone to come on board. Anyone's menopause journey is valid and everybody has a voice within, within our space. And the community is there to drive our direction of travel as a business. So we use the community to ask what we should be doing next. You know, what, what, what workshops are you curious about? You know, one of the great examples I always use is during lockdown, obviously there's a sort of a huge amount of us as women suddenly found ourselves wanting to get into cold water, you know, flocking to the beach. And the Lido is one of the few places that opened early in terms of getting back into some form of fitness. And, and if you go to the Lido, which which I've, I've made part of my regular routine, it is full of midlife women swimming up and down. <laughs> so what, one of the brilliant things we did during lockdown was we vote on the topics that we go for and research on behalf of our community. And someone posted why, why is the Lido full of women in midlife? And so we got in contact. We found a phenomenal Wim Hof practitioner and we held a workshop, which is a big ask of her because our workshops are always partly practical. So it's like, and you need to, to deliver the cold water experience whilst we're all in our houses because we're during lockdown. And she, she delivered this brilliant piece for us, which was all around the research that goes into what happens when you expose your body to managed stressors, the impact it has on our ability to regulate temperature, mood, you know, what's happening to our parasympathetic system when we expose ourselves to cold water. And then she took us through an exercise with an ice bucket that we all took part in. So the community allows us to stay current in terms of what women are curious about. It allows us to go off and do the due diligence for them. And what we've seen is their friendships happen, but that's nothing to do with us. You know, I think as a result of, of having a community with a certain set of rules, you attract people with a certain mindset. And from that, friendships and support networks grow. But we see ourselves very much as sitting on the outside. And obviously, we'll dip in if someone's got a specific question about our product or someone's distressed and we feel we need to put them in contact with someone. But really, that community has been an organic thing that the women in it own. I also feel that they own the direction of travel for the business, you know, because they have such a fundamental part to play in terms of how our blends are developed, what we focus on next, you know, what, what is it that troubles them the most? Where are the gaps currently where they've tried everything and nothing's worked? You know, that kind of insight really is what informs what we do next. So, yeah. That's very cool. So in what I read from your journey, you named yoga as one of the first things that you introduced to your routine alongside working on on the supplements and the mountains of kale you were attempting to eat. And so <laughs> I would love for you to tell me about how how did that happen and, and what did yoga do in that journey for you? Yeah, and I'm still learning. And I think that's the thing I've had to, I think that one of the biggest lessons for me probably during menopause has been to be okay being a beginner and try loads of stuff. <laughs> I was quite a driven individual in the sense that all areas of my life were kind of quite fast paced. So my, my chosen form of exercise was running, which again, isn't unusual for 
for women. And I used to run quite long distances and it fatigued me. You know, it, it got to a point where actually it was, it was um, counterproductive in terms of I had to let go of a form of, of exercise. And, and I would argue also that running was quite meditative for me in order to invite something else in that was going to nourish me. But I was quite not anti-yoga, but quite dismissive of yoga because I didn't really understand it. I probably experienced it in the sort of the nineties at university in some sort of sports hall somewhere. And that was basically, I'd written it off as something that I didn't like. It's like, what are they just lying around? What are they doing? And what was interesting actually is a very good friend of mine who's a yoga teacher and knows me very well, took me through the route of hot yoga because I think what she worked out with me as a character is that I needed something that was really <laughs> initially incredibly painful endurance orientated to kind of get the bug as to go oh okay my body feels really really like it's been exercised but actually also I'm coming out with this real sense of clarity and calm and so I started in in hot yoga and then what's happened to me over um, the last two years particularly during lockdown and particularly being exposed to all these amazing experts that give workshops that I have the privilege of joining is, is understanding the sort of the breadth of offer that yoga has. And so yoga nidra, you know, when I'm feeling tired and I'm working at home and I need a 10 minute or 20 minute break, things like that have become tools in my toolkit that I really do turn to. And because of lockdown, I also got introduced to sort of different forms of yoga via Zoom, but also sort of getting curious about how I could develop my own practice. So I haven't yet, I've kind of done a couple of sessions back in a hot yoga studio since we've been able to, since the world's unlocked. And I still do really love almost, it's like a cleansing experience for me. Too much of it is depleting for me as well. I, I, it, it kind of, you have to balance it. And I think also particularly in menopause, the impact of that extreme heat sometimes can be a good thing, sometimes not such a good thing for people and you have to work it through. But yeah, yoga for me is something that I always feel I feel like it stretches my mind as well as my body. I, I always come out of it sort of feeling, yeah, that's the only way I can describe it really, like everything's been stretched. <laughs> yeah, I was reading a, a book yesterday with a friend and it, um, it reminded me that we are mainly made of space, even though we feel dense. But yoga is one of the ways that I find spaciousness in my body and in my mind as well. For people who don't have a yoga practice, I just want to offer that hot yoga indeed is like, <laughs> it's a very intense cardio depending um, what the heat levels are in the room, which starts at 30 degrees, but goes up to 38 degrees. Is it vinyasa, hot vinyasa that you do? Yeah, I actually started with Bikram, which is almost, I mean, within yoga circles and also in terms of, yeah, just ethical circles now is an area that... Uh, you see less and less Bikram studios for very valid reasons. For me, the, the the static nature of that as a sort of joined together practice, it was a really easy entry level yeah. because the flow, I think, is sometimes a thing that troubles people and makes them feel lost in a class that moves at pace. Whereas there's a sort of pragmatism to the way that the Bikram series worked that almost made me comfortable enough to then explore other things. Sure. Yeah. And also... The great advantage, especially when you're a, a straight beginner, is that you get to see yourself progress yes. because yes, you do the exact same pauses wherever you go, wherever you are in the world when you step into these classes. And, and I see that. And I do find that they are incredibly meditative because the truth is it's impossible to think about something else after five or 10 minutes. Absolutely. I totally agree. And also there's a meditative nature to the of 
a sequence that never changes. Uh, and yet your body changes every time you go into the room. Sure. But I want to tell you that my first ever Bikram class, I was in, I was in East London. I was in Old Street. And does it still have the carpet? Oh, no. Oh, I know some of them. Yeah. Yeah. But I remember one of my colleagues, Fabrizia, who was this very gentle Italian girl. She had told me she was competitive when it came to Bikram, which is hilarious. Mm. But thankfully, she'd explained to me what it was because honestly, after half an hour, I remember lying in a corner of the studio because they tell you you have to stay in the room. (laughs) Whatever you do, don't leave because you Mm. have to get used to the heat. And I remember where I was and I was like, why am I in hell? Like, this is hell. Oh, it's horrible. But of course, after three lessons, suddenly it was like, oh, it's actually easy. Though it was hard to catch my foot from it being too slippery. Yes, yes, Often. there's a lot of sweat. Now, I, I remember taking a gentleman that I knew from football who was who was struggling with um, arthritis and I took him along because my husband actually found it particularly useful for his own arthritis. And this guy was a complete gym bunny, you know, sort of six foot six, really, really muscly, quite competitive as well. And he, he was so cross with me that it probably took about a month <laughs> To, um, to repair the conversation enough to be able to talk to him again because he was, he was just really angry <laughs> that he'd been exposed to this hideous... Because it is horrible. I mean, so much about it is horrible. You just have to not think about it too much. Uh, <laughs> I'm not sure we really sold it for anyone, but yeah. No, no yeah. It's, it's worth a try, I think. So in, in what I heard you speak about today and, and in other interviews, I hear that both nutrition and movement are really important So do you have any advice or thoughts that you'd like to share for women who are in midlife and who feel like they need to change something? I think nutrition is always a good place to start just because it's a foundation layer. And if you can get yourself feeling a little bit more energized, which food has the capacity to do, then everything else becomes possible. And because women are so ridiculously resilient, we don't need that much more. You know, we need a percentage or two more in a tank. And then you've got the energy sometimes to get off the couch and do the other things that you know you should do. So I think nutrition is, is the best place to start for many of us in perimenopause. Also, there's there's a simplicity to nutrition that we often forget because we're sort of bombarded with dietary messages and bad foods and good foods and, you know, no sugar, no caffeine, no alcohol, you know, all of this stuff. But it is relatively straightforward in terms of what we should be looking to do. And it's about ensuring that you're getting enough protein. Many women don't get enough protein in their diet. And, and the best way to do that actually is to start by looking at your breakfast. You know, we often say to our community, just start there because breakfast is one of those meals where quite a lot of us rely on, you know, sort of the white carb family. We might be having cereal in the UK or, or toast or a pastry, you know, that we grab on the way into the office. But if you can actually look to include sort of protein, some complex carbs and some fiber, at the beginning of your day is step one. And then just start looking at the way that you're eating and the vegetables and the the protein sources that can really deliver more bang for their buck effectively. That's a great place to start. It doesn't have to be a, a ridiculously complex supplementation regime. You know, if you can start with food, that's great. And then the second thing we would always say to people is do have the conversation with the doctor, but go to the doctor armed with a little bit of perspective of where you feel you are because they do only have 10 minutes and quite often they will not have had the training in menopause. So you may find yourself arriving in a surgery almost with a little bit more of a perspective on, on, on what you might be with than they will have. But there's so many sources online now. There's letters you can print out and, and take with you. There's questionnaires you can complete and even track your symptoms for a few weeks so that when you go to the doctor, you've kind of captured all of the things. You know, so if you think back to my story, 
they're pretty random disconnected symptoms I had. And that's why, in a way, that the, the doctor wasn't able to join the dots. But if you're able to go in and present a rounded picture of a month's worth of, of symptoms, have the conversation because HRT can often be helpful for women. Mm-hmm. And it can also act as a sort of a layering up in that it can be preventative in terms of other chronic diseases, but also it can give you that burst of energy and feeling good enough to then employ other things. And then and then you're absolutely right. The, the third thing I'd layer on would be movement. And I think, again, we're taught movement is often a punitive thing, I think, for women. We know our purpose for moving is often to lose weight, to be slimmer, to be different, to be more like the the, the imagery we see in magazines. So it's always a bit of a punishment rather than a joy. And I think if you can rediscover the joy in movement, that's a real asset to take into old age. Because the minute you find something you love, the minute you're likely to do it and do it for sustained and consistent periods of time. And, and that's the other thing that I've learned is that I genuinely love going to the Lido, but I don't stay in the Lido for 40 minutes to get my calorific, you know, burn because it's really cold. But, you know, I love the sort of 10 to 15 minutes of cold water swimming, but I see that as a sort of form of therapy rather than a way to lose weight. And similarly with yoga, I see it as a way to stretch or your lovely description of finding space rather than to work on muscle tone. But then what's fascinating is because you're being consistent, all of these things come as a byproduct of doing something you love. One of the things I say to everyone entering perimenopause is if you can nurture that beginner's attitude and a curious mind, try stuff. Because there's so much stuff to do with movement out there that's, that's genuinely joyful. It's really hard to dance in a room and not smile, for example. So sort of discovering those things often lead you to be more active and then that's great for your for your hormones, but also for your state of mind. Thank you. I think that's very helpful. And I appreciate you layering these different um, pieces of advice. That's making me think about my breakfast. <laughs> <laughs> and as for, yeah, for movement, one of the things that I find very important in your story, but that I feel like is my, also my course of exploration and the reason why, even though I'm a consultant, I'm also a meditation teacher. I've become a certified yoga teacher, and now I'm becoming a coach. I'm very curious about the mind, body, soul, heart connection. And the truth is when our bodies show and scream of discomfort, we have to listen because they're really trying to give us a signal that something is going on. And most of the time, I find that we don't pay attention. So yes, one of the ways to make them feel better, our bodies, <laughs> is to is to follow their own instinct, like you were yes. saying, as to yeah. finding the joy in, in movement. I have recently, I think it was in July, June, July, I started doing bar with an amazing mm. French ballet dancer. Oh my God, she's so much fun. <laughs> yes. She's so much fun and she's so silly and her workout is so hard and it makes my legs look so good. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> Perfect. Win-win. I think that's the thing, isn't it? We um talking to the the cold water expert that we had for this workshop. She had gone through her own personal journey of, of extreme illness. Actually, she had a, a extreme sort of set of allergies that made living like basically being inside or outside almost impossible. And she got so sick that it was one of those things where her doctor was just looking at her and going, you know, don't know what to prescribe next. And she signed up to do the Wim Hof training at a really, really low point where she was on another round of, of antibiotics. She'd been off work for like four months. You know, every time she went back in, she caught whatever was going on in the office. You know, she was so depleted. She just thought, 
I'll just, this seems absolutely ridiculous. I'll give it a go. Just, you know, she sort of like puts it down to that, that sort of haze you get when you're sometimes ill, where you're kind of looking through the fog of various cough mixtures that you've been probably over-medicating on. One of the things that really stayed with me from that tour was she said, I learned that if I listened to my body when it whispered, I wouldn't have to hear it scream, which I just think is a you know, brilliant lesson for all of us. That's huge. Mm. That's absolutely huge. I used to say, so my ex-boss is quite famous, Christian Louboutin, the one who makes shoes with red soles. Yes, I've, I've heard of him. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and for a really, really long time, I used to say to people that he had a better inner voice than other people because sometimes he would maybe uncomfortably put me or somebody else in a position where we'd need to cancel a project or change something that doesn't feel... That I personally felt a way of changing, but there was always a very, very good reason. And so I really, I really came to admire how he was able to follow through even in great discomfort in social circumstances. I think the worst one was, is when we had to postpone the opening of an exhibition at the London Design Museum. Wow. When the posters were already up, them on the buses and the, anyway. But he was right. We weren't ready. And everybody else was, including me, was plodding along, pretending it was going to be fine. Mm. And so for years I said, he has a better inner voice than other people. But then it turns out he doesn't. He just listens to it. Yeah, that's amazing, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And we don't. Yes. And I mean, no. I'm trying to, but. So I think that that ties in nicely with the, with I think one of the last questions I want to ask you. You talked about how the course of, of this change in your life and, and what you discovered in this journey of perimenopause and entrepreneurship was a marker that drove you to being more honest and more in integrity with your life. I'd love for you to, to talk to us about that. Yeah, I mean, it, it is a really interesting segue actually from, from your reflections on your boss. I think, I think there's an element of, well, for me, an element of, of me throughout my adulthood, really, when I think back on it, where it was performative. You know, it, there was a desire that I was expected to achieve certain things. I was expected to follow certain paths. And I was often in environments where they were very male-dominated. So I had to perform in a certain way to fit. And I think you know, to your point about sort of inner voice, you lose sense of your voice when you're constantly trying to make it sound like someone else's basically, or to fit into a culture where you're not necessarily recognized for being you. And I had quite early career success by a series of sort of happy accidents <laughs> rather than design. But I, I, you know, I was a very young MD of a company, you know, I was sort of 28 when I, when I had my first managerial directorship. And I was often responsible for people older than me, more experienced than me, so I kind of built up this armor and this way of being that was almost like an extreme version of me. And I think what I've learned through my own menopause journey is that vulnerability is actually what draws us to each other. It shortcuts all kinds of very beautiful, valuable connections. And I'd held myself quite tight and been a certain character. And I was actually quite hard to get to know as a person. And there's something about having to talk about menopause, especially your own journey all the time. <laughs> <laughs> okay. That yeah. opens you up. And I think, uh -huh. I think what I learned as well as I've, I've learned over the last two years from the community, I think what I found fascinating, the thing about being a researcher is it gives you permission to always be on the side uh, because you're always listening. 
you know so you're always absorbing and so you couple that with my need to be performative as a as a leader at a very young age in a very male dominated industry I think I'd always been on the edges and quite hard to read and get to know and I kind of quite liked that I didn't really want anyone to get to know me particularly well so I was quite reserved as a person and then it was almost like an unfurling for me the fact that very few women talk about menopause, but the minute you do start talking about it, our experience is shared and collectively there's so much value that comes from having the conversation. I've always learned to be more honest and open and vulnerable and to let go because again, the, the person that I was heading into menopause was incredibly brittle because that was my only way of coping with the symptoms. I just got tired of being that brittle and it hasn't been easy to let go. And, and really, the business is an extreme letting go. You know, it's a much more fluid, risky operation to give so much over to the community to decide what to do with it and how it evolves. But I'm actually enjoying that because it's so different to, to how I was before, where I had to sort of micromanage everything, including the way that I was perceived, that I think it's a, I think it's a good thing. And I actually think that maybe that's the liberation that can come with menopause. That sounds um, very honest. (laughs) (laughs) It's interesting how we get to know ourselves over over the years. Uh, It's beautiful to witness, to see someone embracing, as it seems to me that you are, who you are without judging her either. Mm -hmm. You seem very accepting and letting go of that old identity and being with the flow. So. Thank you. It's very inspiring. Well, and I think, you know, there's this huge amount of um, gratitude I have because the weird thing about, you know, what I've ended up doing is being exposed to all these amazing practitioners, you know, coaches, career coaches, life coaches, yogis, nutritionists, you know, acupuncturists. And it's almost like I've done a degree course on how, how to be you know, with yourself. So every time I go into these workshops, I learn something. So it's, it's been a, I've been, it felt incredibly lucky in a weird way as well. That's great. Now, Out of the Clouds, as you may remember from our first chat, is a podcast that is like me at the crossroads between business and mindfulness. And I know that meditation has also become part of your life. And you spoke a little bit in another podcast as to how you were also confused about what it was supposed to be <laughs> when you first started, which I think is most people. Yeah. Would you like to share about this and what practices you do? Yes, I think you're alluding to my <laughs> innate desire to make everything vaguely competitive that I have to get good at and win. So I, mean, I think for me with meditation, the thing that I hadn't really appreciated was the word practice in it. And also the fact that there is no, you don't pass, you don't win at meditation. You just spend time doing it. And actually the, the sort of the, the rewards come for me anyway when you least expect them. It's not like I necessarily sort of go into my meditation practice expecting anything of it other than some just some time, some time and some space on a daily basis. And I again, I, I tried not to dig too deep into my preconceptions, my prejudices around any of the practices that I've tried. You know, this, this idea of a curious mind of like, I'm just going to give something a go. You know, so many of the things that we find in midlife or in times of need are practices that have been handed down by generations. So I really shouldn't judge. I should just try. And with meditation, I found that if I could squeeze 10 minutes in the morning, and I think, again, I've talked about this quite honestly, like many women, my house is absolute chaos. So the only way I could do that was to actually just lock the toilet door and do my meditation on the the toilet floor. 
and no one, no one bothers me when I'm in the toilet. So I do that in the morning and, you know, I started off with headspace doing five to 10 minutes every morning. Again, not really expecting anything of it, just going, well, look, other people I, I respect and love have this as part of their practice. What is it about it that, that, that they means that they've made it a habit. And over time, what I found was that it, I could tell when I didn't do it. So it's quite interesting. I couldn't tell when necessarily when I did do it, but I could tell when I didn't do it. And then as I've become, I guess, more adept at learning about meditation through my own community and exposure to experts in, in meditation, I've learned to sort of use it in, at points in my day when I need, I need a little bit of space where I can feel my heart going because I'm anxious. So I've, I've done an interview, not this one, because this has been very lovely, but I've, maybe I've been really nervous and I've gone into a, conversation with journalists I can kind of feel you know when you're breathing here at the top of your at the top of your body and you've been very energized but it's actually a really really draining experience and you come out of it and you need a way to ground yourself again in order to get through the rest of of the day and I found myself turning increasingly to meditation and moving from headspace which I still think is a brilliant entry point for people to working with practitioners on a one-on-one basis and also sort of almost I guess, slightly freer tools like Insight Timer where you can start exploring, you know, perhaps practitioners that you like or or certain disciplines that you like to do with different meditation approaches. So yeah, for me, it's something I'm really glad I found and it's something I really advocate for as well, especially with younger people. You know, I think it's an area that's really interesting on the back of the pandemic. And and again, there's a really interesting body of research increasing around the impact that meditation can have, right? So It's huge. Actually, the research is, is everywhere which is fascinating. And also different types of meditations yield very different benefits, which is, which is fascinating. Before we get on to my uh, quick round of end questions, is there anything else that you'd like to add that you haven't mentioned for our listeners? I think that the, the key thing that I always say about menopause is that it's, it, it is a biochemical life stage that we should be informed, you know, encouraged to, to, to explore as early as possible. Because if you do, there's absolutely no reason why, you know, midlife and beyond can't be everything you hope and want it to be. And I think if we can sort of have these discussions with optimism and with faith that there are tools and solutions and there's Western practices, there's ancient practices, there's all kinds of things that you can do, then then you should be flourishing. And I think that's probably the key message whenever I talk about menopause, I want to leave people with is it can be really tough. And a lot of the time we end up talking about the tough stuff because it's important to do that to ensure that it's less tough for others. But the, the thing to kind of keep front of mind, I think, is the more informed you have, the more agency we have as women over our health and our wellness, the better our aging process will be. Thank you so much. Now, I have one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. I'm not going to ask every question because otherwise you'll be here for an extra half an hour. But so let me maybe ask you this. Tell me about an act of kindness that has touched your life. I, I actually find acts of kindness all the time. I get incredibly moved by, from a, from a commercial and business perspective, from reviews. I always find it fascinating that people take the time to feedback. <laughs> and I'm always incredibly grateful for that. And I think one of the early indicators for me of just the sort of the generosity of spirit that's inherent, I think, when women come together was when we first started the business, we did a survey to try and find out what, what people's experience of menopause was. You know, was mine unique and, and particularly tough or was this common? You know, what, what kind of tools and practices had women found that worked and what hadn't? And one of the questions I always asked in the survey was, what, what do you wish your younger self had known about this stage of life? And what we found with that research was that the majority of people filling it in were women 
postmenopause, you know, so women much, much older, so not just recently postmenopause, but maybe in their 60s and 70s. And what I just thought at the time was how generous and kind is that, that you have women who are going to get nothing from the work and the research that I'm doing because they've had their menopause and they're driven to take 10 minutes out of their day to, to share their own experiences so that others can learn from it and hopefully not have the same. But that for me was just so, so kind and so generous. I'm, I'm often struck actually by how older women will look back at younger women to help them find the way. And if you ask people what motivates them now in the menopause space, it's often about their daughters or their sisters or, you know, the younger peers they see coming up maybe in the classroom that they're wanting to change for. We, we can be an incredibly selfless, generous group when we come together. And I, that always warms my heart. Mm, that's so lovely. Very different line of question. What is your favorite word? And I should explain a word that you would tattoo on yourself. Ah, really funny, actually, because I've been thinking about a tattoo. <clears throat> I've been tattoo curious for a long time. Ah. I think, actually, if I was tattooing something, because I have been giving this a lot of thought, it wouldn't be a single word, actually. It'd probably be a phrase. Ooh. There's a couple of phrases I have front of mind. One is, if not for you, which is a line from my wedding song by Bob Dylan. And the other one is, the littlest birds sing the prettiest songs, which would be really long as a tattoo, so probably not very practical. But again, there's another line from a song I love, which is just about how small things can make a massive impact and bring joy to life. But my favourite word, and I will shut up in a minute, my favourite word is, is concur. I just think we should use it more. When someone says they concur, I, I, for me, it's one of the most joyful things because it's just so life-affirming to have someone, <laughs> someone believe in something so much. People may rarely say it to me, but when, when someone says to me, I concur, it just makes me very happy. So it's a really good word. I, yeah. I, I love all of that. Great answer. <laughs> What song best represents you? Oh my goodness, that's a really tough one. What song best represents me? Well, there's there's quite a, f- a few that I I love for the way that they represent midlife and joy. One of my favourites is by The Vaccines, which is I don't know what the actual title is, but it's put a wetsuit on. If you wiki Google that one, and it's really about the shock of suddenly realising you've aged, and it's and, you know, the lyrics something like you know put a wetsuit on, let your hair grow long you know, and, and kind of just get out into the waves and just enjoy yourself and, and live a little. So that's probably that song I would use. Oh, that's amazing. What did you want to be when you were a little girl? I genuinely didn't know what I wanted to be when I grew up. And, you know, to your point earlier about the honesty I've learned to, to, to maybe live with a little bit, I think I, I probably took a path that was, was expected of me rather than really learning what I wanted to be but I also think that life is is so sort of you know the path of life is so different for, for most of us from what we expect that it really is about saying yes to things you're curious about so I think I probably wanted to be an actress but I'm not sure whether that was really a genuine desire or whether that was <laughs> put in my head and I definitely wasn't good enough to be an actress you know I did go to university and do drama and English but there was no way that I was going to end up on, on the stage. I was much more comfortable, again, analysing mm. behaviour and being behind the scenes. Interesting. Yes, but there was a creative aspect to it, though. And you understand the performance as well. And you're, you're pretty eloquent as an entrepreneur. So I, I'd say this <laughs> served you in some way. <laughs> maybe, maybe. What would you say to your younger self if you could send yourself a message? It probably, and I don't know if you'd, you'd listen in, in youth, but I think... I felt very uncomfortable in my own skin, you know, 
really until I, I was a mother, interestingly. And I was a mother, you know, relatively young and outside the kind of the peer group that I was in. It was, it was, it was young and it was unusual and it was tricky. But I think I was, I always wanted to be and look different, you know, and it was such a waste of energy and time. And I wish that my, that my younger self had known that actually the interesting thing about people is their character. And, and I, I think that's a really hard lesson to learn. I wish, I wish I'd learned that one sooner. What's the best advice you've ever been given? It probably is advice around learning. I think one of the benefits of, of working in research is that you're always, you, you kind of become a master of something for about two months, usually, if you're working in an industry where you're being given briefs to have an opinion on something. So you go very, very deep into an area and then you move on. And actually, for me, as a dyslexic, I've forgotten about it about two months later. <laughs> but I used to love going really deep into things. And I think one of the best bits of advice I was given by my my grandparents, um, who were sort of lifelong learners, was to, to kind of keep learning, to stay curious, to keep exploring stuff and to keep sort of challenging preconceptions and, and finding stuff out. And I think that's a, a huge benefit to us as we age as well, to stay curious. Beautiful. What book is next to your bed or on your desk? Mm, so next to my bed actually is when I been reading really with the mind to to understand a little bit about <clears throat> how some of the more famous characters in, in our world operate and I think it's called because I knew that you were going to ask me this question it's called something like excuse the language because this is this is the title of the book bloody brilliant partnerships it's all about the relationships that sometimes occur behind the scenes that we we know less about so for example one of my favorite chapters in it talks to the relationship between Bob Dylan and Joan Byers not not their mm. romantic relationship but actually how Byers was instrumental in Dylan's success you know and and just those moments where people meet and a sort of something happens a spark happens that changes the trajectory of someone else's life and, and often they're not given credit for it so that's the book that's by my bed at the moment wonderful who is one person that you think we should all know about but don't hmm. so the person I thought to when when you shared this as a, a question in advance of the call was actually a poet called Carol Ann Duffy which some people may be familiar with, depending on you know what schooling system they went through and whether they were in the UK, because occasionally her books are on the syllabus. She's brilliant in that she's a feminist who just tells stories from the female point of view. One of her anthologies, which is one of my favourites, is called The World's Wife. And it retells all of those stories, whether it's about Midas, for example. But she tells it from the, <laughs> from the wife's point of view, you know, the frustration of this man suddenly touching everything and it turns to gold. Uh, and, you know, so it's, it, she does it in a very humorous way as well. And she also writes beautiful poetry about life that just cuts through all of the false metaphors around love and, and relationships. So I've always, I've always really enjoyed the way that her, she uses language. So, yeah, if you haven't discovered her, she's definitely worth a read. I will go and check her out right now. <laughs> and um, my last question for you is, what brings you happiness? I mean, I think happiness is, is, is interesting, isn't it? It's kind of, it's... It's, I've learned not to try and manifest it. I, I think that's probably one of my other learnings of, of menopause. But, and I've, I think what I found is that, that it's often time. time. Time brings me happiness, sort of time to actually pause and just be in the moment. It's, it's as simple as that. And that can be any type of moment. It can be sort of standing on the edge of a football pitch, talking to football mums. It can be grabbing a coffee with my husband, it can be, but it's just that opportunity to just be in those conversations rather than with your mind halfway somewhere else. I think that's what really makes me happy. 
mindfulness. Mindfulness, Sorry. indeed. Yeah, <laughs> maybe you're right. You're absolutely right. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for your time. It was such an enlightening conversation. I hope we get to talk uh, again soon. I wanted to ask, where can people find you and find out more about Empowder? Thank you. So probably the easiest route into our community actually is Instagram because it's it's a collection of almost microblogs that we we post there. We, we use the, the platform quite differently to a lot, lot of um, companies, I think, in that it's just where we go to share stuff that we find interesting, to feedback on stories, to tell you about events and, and things that are happening. But it's a, it's a sort of little window into the community itself. And then if you are more curious, you can head to our website, which is www.mpowder.store. And that's really where you can find out about our products. And then the final environment that we have is a it's a closed space where everyone's welcome. So you just have to knock on the door. And that's on Facebook and it's called The Powder Room. So if you search M Powder, The Powder Room, you'll find that community, which you just need to request to join. And that's where all of the workshop videos sit, where the conversations amongst our community take place, where we ask your advice in terms of what we want to be doing next as a group of women. So that's kind of the heart and soul of the business is on Facebook. That's awesome. Well, thank you again. I hope you have a fantastic rest of the day and I'll be looking forward to seeing you and your company continue to break new ground. Thank you so much for having me on. It's been, it's been really lovely having a chat. Thanks. Take care. You too. Bye. Thanks again to Rebecca for being my guest on the show. You can find everything about M Powder online at mpowder.store and on Instagram or Facebook at Empowder Store. Hey, friends and listeners, thanks again for joining me today. And as usual, you'll find links from today's topics in the show notes. You can also find all of the episodes from Out of the Clouds at outoftheclouds.com, where you can also sign up to receive bi monthly emails on hot topics, books, podcasts, and other things I enjoy and that I think you will too. And of course, all of them with a touch of mindfulness. If you want to hear more from Out of the Clouds, go to your favorite podcast app and click on the subscribe button or even leave a review. It's always great to hear from you. If you'd like to connect, you can get in touch with me at Anvi on Twitter, Anne Mulitala on LinkedIn and at underscore Out of the Clouds on Instagram. So that's it for today. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you'll join again next time. And until then, be well, be safe, take care.